0: And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, 19 months into the great and terrible pandemic of, that we're all experiencing when lockdown's gone mad and the world's insane, it's Jonathan trying to get a Wolf the Cooch Street Podcast. And we thought
1: that by now we'd be talking about remember when we had the pandemic, remember when we were locked down, remember when we couldn't go anywhere, uh, but I at least am planning by the end of the year to go somewhere. Well, that, that's going to be good
0: for you because, of course, uh, things aren't going quite so well here in Australia, as you may have seen. And with, what, 12 million people locked down now in Australia with very, very harsh uh, and limiting restrictions in some places, particularly in New South Wales uh, and in Victoria, but particularly in New South Wales, it's pretty. It's a pretty strange and difficult time. I mean, you know, uh, we we hear reports that, now that the UK has opened up, 30% of people have deleted their tracing apps and all this kind of thing. So tracing mm-hmm. is falling apart. Um, there's uneven pickup in your, your neck of the woods. So who knows where we're at? These are undeniably strange and difficult times.
1: Nevertheless, still books are still coming out. Writers are still producing interesting stuff. We're beginning to see things that are clearly... Uh, you must be beginning to see submissions that are clearly written after the onset of the pandemic. And I think we've talked oh, sure. before that the the idea at this point of trying to identify pandemic-era literature is way too premature. Although no, it's not. It's
0: not? No, it's, no, not, no it's, not. it's not? No, you can totally see it. Uh, right now, I mean, I'm reading and doing a couple of things, but right now, I, uh-huh. like literally yesterday, I started reading the advanced review copy of the next John Scalzi novel, which is coming out in March. Uh-huh. Just because, frankly, I could. Uh, it's a book called the Kaiju Preservation Society. Huh. And the Kaiju Preservation Society is set during the COVID pandemic. Okay. You know, and I've just this last, just, just yesterday, delivered a new project to a publisher. This is a book called Tomorrow's Parties for MIT Press. It's the latest of their 12 Tomorrow's series. 12 Tomorrow's series. From-
1: Sorry? Oh, say so your title partly borrowed from Gibson, I presume. Not even a little bit. Okay. Uh, as, 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 Gibbs, as Gibson's was, mine,
0: mine's lifted from the Velvet Underground and from where they got in. Ooh. So, you know, absolutely. Uh, but it was a the the nod there was if you are living in the Anthropocene, it's just this idea of like kind of to some degree right. what comes after the Ministry of the Future, and so it is the sort of the kind of things, the kind of problems, and da da da. Tomorrow's parties. Anyway, the the pandemic is hardwired into a chunk of that. You're seeing it in fiction that's coming out because there's because now, particularly with digital publishing, mm-hmm. the lead time between writing and publishing can be very short indeed. That's at true. At times. Um and I I know of times when the major online magazines have had issues due out 2 weeks away and they're still picking the final stories and if something happened to fall through the, you know, the the inbox at the right moment it might go straight into that issue. So there's absolutely stuff happening that's uh, of the moment. But But my question is,
1: 10 or 20 years from now, we'll be able to – some of these stories will still be around. There'll be an anthology. Some of the novels will still be around. And are we going to be looking back 10 or 20 years from now saying, oh, that's clearly a COVID period novel? In the way we look back now and say, "Okay, that's clearly a Vietnam-era novel. Uh, a lot of you know, a lot of anti-war things, a lot of misunderstood alien things," uh, in, the, in the 60s and 70s, um, the Thatcher in, in, in England more than in the States. People, at least friends of mine, can say they can pretty much identify Thatcher-era science fiction, and I think they're right. Oh,
0: look, I'm I maintain that the new space opera and the new weird are both flips on Thatcher and Reaganism.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so, so there is a way of looking at that. The difference is uh, the, the, the COVID, because I've been looking at uh, stories and, and, and wondering, was this story actually written before? Because there's, there's always been a, a, a tradition of, of plague stories, of, of yeah. uh, going back at least to Mary Shelley. And by the standards of plague stories, COVID isn't a very good fictional plague. It, it doesn't kill enough people. It's not volatile enough. It's not – even if you go back to things like uh, Frank Herbert's The White Plague, which was a designed uh, killer. Uh, we've had lockdowns, but who wanted to write an apocalyptic science fiction novel about having to stay in your house for two years? That's not very exciting. You want to write well, a novel about me, fleeing to the mountains. Okay, uh, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to quibble with you. First of all, okay.
0: first quibble, it's not over yet. No, true. Second of all, you know, the truth of a slow apocalypse is it starts with something minor and uh, things like collapsing economies and stuff take you out. Mm. Third of all, if you're living in India and you're burning bodies in car parks, I reckon it looks pretty apocalyptic.
1: Um, Well, that's an argument that can always be made. And and that's essentially the argument that the opening chapter of uh, of Stan Robinson's The Ministry of the Future makes in horrifying detail. So you're absolutely right. Um, but um, And, and it's, it's one of the things that um, you have to think about when you start thinking about the term dystopia, which is so overused now, mostly in mainstream criticism. Um, and, and you use the term post-apocalyptic, which I think is much more accurate about fictions that describe life during or after an apocalypse. Dystopia, it strikes me, is something that um, people are living with right now uh, in much of the world and, uh, yes. and I, I'm reading uh, two collections of sto- stories right now, uh, which I'll be reviewing sometime in the uh, near future. Just a second. Um, and both do the same kind of, they don't do the same thing, but I'm seeing the same thing in them. Um, one is a uh, collection by a writer, mostly mainstream, but she's published in tour.com named Brenda Penato. Um and the other is a, a first retrospective collection from Nina Allen. And these are these are interesting authors to me because they mix mainstream realistic stories, family-oriented sort of stories that deal with trying to find your identity in a um, contemporary society. And then they kind of edge into science fiction. These are both writers who move back and forth. And it's fun looking at at the stories to see, even in their mainstream stories, that there's a kind of fantastic edge. It's a fantastic science fiction and fantasy are just outside the edges of the story wanting to get in. And at some point in each of these authors, they get in. Uh, The Pinato stories, which have stories about aliens being discriminated against as a racial minority, which is not a terribly new idea, but it's very well handled. The most horrifying story in in the Pinato book uh, is about somebody working two menial jobs uh, one at a emergency veterinary clinic and one at a, a hair salon while trying to pay off a massive amount of student debt now sh- that person is living in a dystopia it's an absolutely terrifying life she has no way out of it that she can see yeah yeah um, and I was thinking if I had not been reading that story in the context of other stories that are fantastic would I have seen that as a dystopian story and would you see if you look at it in that context a lot of what is actually realistic fiction if it If you tried to describe even 50 years ago what student debt looks like in the United States right now, that would have been dystopian fiction. And now it's simply realistic fiction.
0: I think there's truth to that. I think that dystopias uh, are unevenly distributed and are uh, multiplicit, not uh, Mm -hmm. singular. We tend to express dystopias and dystopianism as a a singular concept. But in fact, there are a multiplicity of overlapping dystopias at any given time, it would seem now. I mean, as you look at the attack on democracy in the United States, as we look look upon the the climate-driven dystopia. And also, uh, unevenly across the, the globe, I mean, parts of China are deeply dystopian, it would appear. Yes. Uh, parts of north korea look deeply dystopian uh parts of europe look deeply dystopian and other parts look the exact opposite so it is a, a, it's a it's a tricky thing and i realize that fiction abstracts that and i mean right now i think you could argue science fiction is struggling to find a way to encapsulate this because it wants to talk about things that lead you to dy- a dystopian assumption and but by, by that i mean things like climate change and things like mm. uh, pandemics all these kind of things um but it hasn't yet got solutions but it wants to present them and it wants to pre- present stories that you want to read at you know, you, you want tomorrow's parties you want stories yeah. that are going to be believable and plausible and give you some degree of optimism i mean you know stan oh, art yeah. music sorry yeah
1: uh, no, I, I, I guess my point is that I, I, I see increasingly, uh, again, among general commentators in and, 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 and Twitter and, and, and YouTube and on Facebook and in and the newspapers, using the term dystopia to mean uh, what you mentioned as post-apocalyptic, anything bad, any part of the world. In other words, were we to talk about North Korean culture, if that were suddenly imposed upon the United States or Australia, of course, that would be a dystopian fiction um, is it not a dystopian fiction because people are currently living under those? Or to get more fine grained about it, there are people living in dystopias in the United States and Australia, simply yeah. because they don't have access to uh, to, to the society the society purports to, pre- pre- uh, to, to yes. offer of them. And
0: also do all of the pe- well, is the assessment of, uto- of dystopia uh, ubiquitous, Yeah. You know, do the people who are living within those dystopias necessarily see them as being dystopian for them? Right, in many cases, point. they do. In some cases, they may not. You know,
1: It's an interesting thing. I guess the question is, and it has to do probably with uh, a kind of universal concept in, 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 in critical thinking that's become much more important in the last 20 years than it ever was before, it has to do with the concept of privilege. Um, privilege is... Lacking the privileges you now have begin to look more and more dystopian. Um, And a lot of what is portrayed as dystopian is uh, the removal of those privileges. My point is that those privileges can be removed by um, climate change, by poverty, by things that are not uh, necessarily government action. Up until a few years ago, uh, up until this word began to mutate, uh, I always thought of a dystopia as something that had to do with a government, with an authority, with with something that's in charge of your life. The classic dystopias are 1984 and Brave New World, sure. uh, and so forth and so on. And, and now I'm seeing any kind of post-apocalyptic literature described as a dystopia. is a pan, One of the great pandemic novels is George R. Stewart's Earth Abides. And yep. it's almost everybody on Earth dies, but it... Society sort of comes back, but it doesn't really come back. It devolves into a tribal society, and by the end of the novel, the character, Ish, who's the main character, realizes that all his attempts to preserve civilization have basically failed. Civilization is just going to have to reinvent itself. Now, this is an end of the world novel, in, in, you know, end of the human race, and the human race has to sort of claw its way back afterwards. I don't, I don't see that as a dystopia. Uh, the disease in Stephen King's *The Stand*, *The Flu*, only results in a dystopia because some evil character in Las Vegas makes that part of the world into a dystopia. In other words, dystopia yeah. to me implies power; it doesn't imply simply disaster. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because this is where where it
0: becomes uh, a matter of perception. You know, if you have short okay, the events that we keep referring to it, so it, it feels like the spoiler we can deal with. The events at the beginning of the Ministry of the Future, where there's an a, a enormous mass death, look, they're horrific. They're almost mm-hmm. dystopian. But you're right. They're, I mean, okay, for something to be dystopian, does it have to be imposed by people?
1: Exactly the question. Is that I'm what asking. makes it?
0: Is mm-hmm. that what makes it? I think it pro, well, no, I don't know. I mean, because I look at some things, right, and I think, Surely you can live if a situation is bad and miserable, and you can't
1: change it. Isn't that enough to be dystopian? I I I, I don't really tend to think so. You told okay. Let's 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 go back to the origins of dystopian. It's a play on utopian, which sure. is Thomas More's term uh, of an ideal society. By which in 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 the original meaning of Thomas More's Utopia was a design society, was an idealized yep. government, and utopian fiction has always been based on some form of idealized social structure or idealized, uh, government dystopia. It seems to me to be parallel with that has to deal with deliberate social structures. Also people are deliberately being repressed in dystopia. People are, they're, they're not simply being deprived. Um, one of the interesting things that, uh, always struck me about, um, Stephen Baxter's two novels, The Flood and Ark, I think were the two of them, uh, where he deals with the entire world being inundated. And I remember reading these, this is what, 15 years ago now, maybe 20 years ago. And I remember reading these thinking, okay, Stephen Baxter is taking on uh the issue of global warming and flooding. That's not what happens at all. This water wells up from inside the earth. The earth is inundated in exactly the same way it was inundated in, oh, let's say S. Fowler writes deluge from the 1930s. In other words, Natural disasters happen. Is a natural yeah. disaster resulting in a dystopia? Uh, now, before I, before you answer that, when we, as a matter of world or government or social policy, allow the world to become flooded, you know, if Florida turns into the archipelago that everybody thinks it's going to be in a few years because we made the wrong decisions, then you can say, okay, there's policy. There's bad policy behind. But if you know a meteor strikes the Earth, does that result in a dystopia? Well, certainly. You know, when I look,
0: I'm just looking as as we talk, because we live in a world where we don't do one thing at once. Uh, When I look at definitions of dystopia, they certainly Mm -hmm. suggest there has to be human agency behind what is happening, and it is happening to people. It is imposed by people on people and experienced by people. So, in other words, it wouldn't be a dystopia if, as you say, a, a, a comet hit the Earth. Uh, there was a nuclear winter and everything else. It would be terrible and it would be post-apocalyptic, but it wouldn't mm-hmm. be dystopian. But people would probably use the term inaccurately anyway.
1: Well, th- and there have been attempts to, to substitute or, or at least to refine the term. The uh, the urban historian Lewis Mumford liked the term cacatopia K-A-K-O, based on a Greek word meaning the, meaning just any kind of a bad society uh, as being apart from something which is a deliberately bad society. And somebody else who I can't remember, some British critic, came up with the term anti-utopia. Uh, but anti-utopia had yeah. a very different kind of meaning. Anti-utopia, as a matter of fact, anti-utopia, since we had her as a guest uh, recently, is pretty much what happens in, 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 in uh The future is the Past is Red, The Future is Blue, where you've got people who don't realize they live in a dystopia or deny that they're living in a dystopia, and they think yeah. they're in a utopia. True. So, so so, I, mean, I, mean, I, would, I would argue
0: that— uh-huh. Go ahead. I would argue that the future is
1: blue and the past is red are basically folk tales rather than science fiction. Well, they're presented that way. Uh, but there there, are a lot of uh, Anthropocene jokes in them, for lack of a better term. And it's, it's it's very, very contemporary sounding. But the idea of uh, there was a. I was reading it the other night for some reason. I was reading uh, the opening chapter of Robert Silverberg's The World Inside, which is called A Happy Day in 2381, I think. And it's it, clearly people living in this horrible. Overregulated, massive ur- urban monad, thousand-story-high buildings, and they think, just like the narrator of, of, of Captain Linty's stories, that they're in the best of all possible worlds. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what this meaning of anti-utopia is. What I'm getting at is that dystopia has become such a broad term that maybe we need to think about variations on that and how to distinguish things that we have control over from things that we don't have control over. And, yeah, and in and between, that things, we, things we sort of have control over. Well, yes. Well, like, is, is the Anthropocene a climate dystopia? Well, that's kind of what I'm asking, uh,
0: to the extent I think that- it is, but I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that we're going to get to re- resolve this, but um, I feel like I need yeah. to think more about it, but I think that probably the way the term will evolve is into- climate dystopias political dystopias that kind of thing rather than avoiding the use of the term dystopia because the term dystopia has been hardwired in over the last decade and a half in a way that others have not and similarly um i mean even apocalypse has been rendered kind of meaningless in popular culture in the last 20 or 30 years so i mean I, i i think it's dystopia and dystopianism that will reign so then it's like whether you then re-slice it so that it makes more sense.
1: Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's just largely a way of classifying different kinds of fiction, maybe a way of writing different kinds of fiction. Uh, yeah, there are yeah. clearly, I mean, the, the Anthropocene novels that are out now clearly deal with the results of choices that are, either have been made or are being made now. To that extent, yep. uh, the, the, the responsibility of, of, of us humans for what's happening is um, is inescapable. But then there are yes. also uh, I don't, I'm trying to think. That's a good question. Are there um, giant meteor? There, a, there are plenty of alien invasion stories, which kind of just shoves the whole dystopian thing to the side. Like, okay, if there are. Alien overlords or robot overlords, that means it's not our problem. It's not our dystopia because it's being imposed yeah. upon us by by robots or aliens. But are there stories like, uh, what was the Niven and Pernell novel, Lucifer's Hammer? Uh, giant yeah. meteor striking the earth, that kind of thing. They were popular as recently as 20 and 30 years ago. Have they disappeared because we've replaced them with human origin dystopias?
0: I think they exist. And I think that they cycle around us or it it cycles around as a a feature. I mean, there's a a section in, um, in the expanse, for example, Mm. where humans throw rocks at earth and cause vast environmental damage, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's a variation. It may not be a natural comet striking the earth. It might not be an at winter's end or something, but it's a similar kind of thing dating back to Heinlein and before. Um, And those sort of things are are in place and and seem to exist fairly freely, though a lot of the attention in science fiction is is, is directed elsewhere at the moment.
1: Well, the the statistic that's always fascinated me, and I've never checked it, and I don't think anybody else has either. But there was a writer, uh, a critic, a scholar named Warren Wager, who uh, unfortunately passed away many years ago. But toward the end of his career, he was actually selling some stories to FNSF. He became a science. fiction. But his most famous book was a book called Terminal Visions, which is to this day the best study I've read about end of the world fiction. And one, so he read hundreds of them, at least 300 that he cataloged. And, and, and what he found was this, that prior to World War One, all, nearly more than two-thirds of all the end-of-the-world fiction dealt with naturally occurring plagues, dealt with uh, floods, dealt with earthquakes, dealt with uh, comets and so forth, the year of the comet. Two-thirds of them, and only a third of them, had anything to do with human activity. There were a few yeah. war novels. Those, those were mostly in the latter part of the 19th century. They were mostly uh, sort of pre-World War One novels. After World War One, so two-thirds of world ending disasters are natural before world war one after world war one two-thirds of them are caused by human activity either mostly war and first of all there were a lot of uh, stories and novels that sort of predicted world war one's nightmares would just go on and on and on Uh, uh, h.g wells did some of that in um, the shape of things to come and then after the the atomic bomb Science fiction writers had everything they've always wanted. OK, we can just wipe ourselves out with, with, with a few secret uh, super weapons. and then eventually that gets replaced by um, I guess the things we do to the world uh, w- w- in, in, in terms of causing climate change, causing disasters and so forth yeah. and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in other words, we're in a world now in which fictionally fiction readers and fiction critics and scholars and uh, commentators. Assume that the end of the world is going to be our fault, and for you know, for two hundred years before World War One, we assumed that it was going to happen, but it wasn't necessarily our fault. <laughs> well, that's that's if the common,
0: if the average person even really ex- believed there was a way short of divine intervention where the world would end terribly prior, you know, like more than two hundred years ago. You know, I I, I, yeah. I doubt that it would it would have seriously occurred. Whereas now we very much live in a time when, well we some people believe already killed the world is just slowly dying you know mm-hmm. and that certainly that we are almost well we are probably in a civilization ending period of time as driven I, by our I, own actions
1: I, I i think one of the more important novels of the last 20 years and i you know how important i think sure. the ministry of the future is right now but Another one, another one of the most important novels in terms of this ongoing dialogue about science fiction is Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora, um, in which he basically makes the argument that the entire fantasy of science fiction going back, at least to Jules Verne, isn't going to work. The idea that we can escape this planet, that we can colonize other planets, uh, he he was basically talking about the idea of the Generation Starship. But the, the argument, which is behind that argument, is that, The whole kind of uh, consensus cosmogony, which is what Donald Wolheim called it, that we're going to colonize, we're going to build space stations, and then we're going to colonize the moon, and then we're going to colonize Mars, and then we're going to, well, back in the 50s, they thought maybe Venus. I don't think they're thinking about that. But that whole fantasy isn't working, and if it were to work, it probably wouldn't work in time. (laughs) Yes, that is probably true. Yes. Yes. So, so, so we're stuck with a different version of the future. And, and in terms of science fiction, I think this is a huge sort of tectonic shift for the first 60 or 70 years of genre science fiction. Let's say we start from um, from Gernsback, but we can go back and start with Wells's First Men in the Moon. There was this idea that space was the final frontier. Um, and even if it is, it's not going to work. It's not going to solve our problems. It's not going no, to save us.
0: But yes. I mean, if you, if you want to talk about the things that are the biggest changes that I've seen in my perception as someone who loved science fiction and mm-hmm. thought that it's in some way spelt out a future, the attractiveness, desirability, uh, usefulness of space has changed dramatically. Uh, you know, once upon a time, I mean, I, I okay, you're talking to someone who, when he was seven years old mm. in 1971, absolutely believed he was going to grow up, become a geologist and live on Mars. Really? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I have a, a a high school magazine, right. Where they were uh, we were asked to say what we were going to do when we were going to grow up. And that's what I said I was going to do when I grew up. And at one point I even studied geology, whatever, but uh, university, but, I no longer believe that anything like that at all. First of all, I don't believe we can meaningfully get there. I don't think we can usefully get there. I don't think there's that much useful to find. If you look at the, the Mars we see and know about now, it, it's toxic, it's dangerous, all these kind of things. That's space for you. And then you look mm-hmm. at how you get there. One of the most, well, not one of the most common, but, but a common thing in pre-1960s science fiction was some brilliant genius billionaire would build himself a rocket ship to, to, to the stars and would change the world, right? Mm. And that was a good thing. It was a good thing in Heinlein. It was a good thing in a number of other places. And now you look at where it's actually happened, like in the last week, yeah. a billionaire built a space plane and went to space whilst in a space race with two other billionaires who are trying to uh, build space spacecraft and go to space. And will, I mean, th- they will. And it's incredibly toxic for the world around them. It's not a good thing in any way, in any imaginable way, what they're doing.
1: Yes, I, I remember reading somewhere how much, uh, what the carbon footprint was of, of Branson's flight alone. Yeah. So, so there, and, and, and the idea of making this into a commercially viable thing, which means oh, eventually, yeah. maybe in our lifetimes, maybe the ticket price will come down to $20,000 instead of $250,000. Yeah, 10 minutes of weightlessness, but it's not even real, real space, right? No, I mean, you can do that in the vomit comet from what I understand.
0: Uh, you know, uh, and then you ask yourself, well, I mean, also it's like, who, I mean, who's going to go? How are you going to go? You look at the whole billionaire issue and then you, one of the memes in, in science fiction and we've read recent examples. We're not going to talk about them because spoilers because it's, mm. but, Uber rich people who flee to space to get away from the, the world. Right. And then you look at what does it take to send someone to the space, the international space station now to keep them there and to resource them there. Cause not just punt it up and flying around happily and then come back down. Right. Mm-hmm. It is a constant incessant. I mean, I read an article about this just uh, recently, well, um, which if I'd kept the link, I'd put in show notes about the cost, the effort, the constant effort just to keep one person alive in orbit for an extended period of time before they can return to Earth. There's no way it'll ever be practical to be up there in any kind of way with any kind of technology that we can reasonably uh foresee. And it is a kind of sort of twisted techno-utopianism to imagine that there will be. So you're sort of you're right, science fiction has to, to some degree, step away from that, leave that version of things, I think, to the world of fantasy, which is where it now belongs. I mean, space opera really is a, a subdivision of epic fantasy in a way. Now, uh, yeah, uh, I, I th- that's
1: that's that's a crucial point. That the the idea that this, this space opera is, we're not going to give up on space opera because it's no, too much fun. Different. Uh, we're not going to give up on the idea of. I mean, the uh, one of the more enjoyable novels I've read recently was uh, Charlie Jane Anders' Victory is Greater Than Death," which is an old-fashioned 1949 version space opera. A bunch of uh, you know uh, misfit uh, kids are, are, are join the uh, the aliens, and and, and it, it's it's you're right. It's epic fantasy. There's no sense of extrapolation in that at all, uh, yeah. and. Nor need there be, because if somebody were to write a serious uh, novel now uh, along the lines of an early Heinlein juvenile, I can't imagine other than doing it as a parody, uh, you could even get it published.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so yes, it's it, it's it's a strange time for science fiction, and because it's it is probably part of the reason why we've been so willing to turn our attention to uh sociological matters in science fiction which has always been a major part of science fiction but the sociological and demographical have really come into play in the last uh decade or so and i'm sure that's part of it and you can see science fiction turning i mean now we, we are seeing more near future mid-future science fiction in terms of there being quote-unquote serious science fiction right uh and you're seeing more um pandemic-based fiction, more um, climate-based fiction, all those kind of things, because these are the kind of problems that actually are confronting us. In a way that they weren't... I mean, I'm sure if you go back, I mean, sure, in the 50s, it was all, all nuclear war, all that kind of stuff. Now it's right. climate change. These are the real problems confronting us. And that, after all, is what science fiction is. You know, it's fiction that uses the laboratory of the
1: near to distant future as a way of looking at issues that confront the present. Well, I think that's that's true of one branch of science fiction. I think the other branch... And I would include uh, things like, uh, like Charlie Jane's Victories Greater Than Death or Cat or, or, or Valenti's Space Opera or anything that's called space. One of the things that this realization has done is to liberate science fiction from the idea that it's some kind of techno-educational fiction. In other words, the idea that science fiction, Gernsback's idea that science fiction has to uh, somehow teach you something about science or, 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 or uh, Campbell's idea that it has to be defensible science. Uh, that's not really what stories have ever been about and to some extent by giving up the myth that science fiction is a chronicle of our actual future in space it liberates writers to say look let's just write it as though it were even though we're not pretending anymore that this is a a serious projection into the future i wonder to
0: what extent if you were to ask uh, a mike ashley say you know a a Uh scholar who might be able to answer the question uh if you look back at science fiction of the 40s and 50s and 60s, and you, that but certainly the pre and that drive towards the idea that true science fiction is about solving problems with technology and everything yeah. else. How much of that was when you go back to Gernsback and everything else, the societal construct you put around science fiction so that you could get it past everything and getting it out into the world. In other words, it was hey, look, it's like. Eating your eat, eating your veggies when you're having dinner, right? It's like, well, this is going to be good for you because it has this this mm-hmm. you know societal benefit. Oh, and also, yes, it's fun, and there's blah 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 blah. But that's what it's really about. And I wonder if, how much it was that was
1: actually a, a bait and switch. I wonder if that uh, if it might have been different in the UK than it was in the US, because one of the things I always suspected. About American science fiction is that it was it was presented that way because it looked so pulpish. Because because I I actually got in trouble with my dad for picking up a paperback of a novel by Theodore Sturgeon called The Cosmic Rape, which probably was not a good choice for a title for a fifties paperback or a sixties no. paperback or whatever it was. It had nothing to do with sex at all, um, but nevertheless, my argument always with my parents and I heard this from any number of other people were. Well, this is useful. This isn't just wild stories. It isn't what it looks like Mm. on the covers. We're really uh, learning things about this. And and not just science. We're learning about society. We're learning about government and so forth and so on because we were being lectured to by Heinlein at the time. Um, So the idea that science fiction was always rationalized for extra literary reasons. In other words, it was always defended because it was educational or it it broadened your imagination or whatever it was. And that has to do with, I think, a longstanding American problem. And I think it is more probably characteristic of American culture than either British or Australian culture, which is a long lasting puritanism. You shouldn't read anything mm. if it's just fun. <laughs> you, you shouldn't you shouldn't just be having fun with these things. You know, you shouldn't be wasting your time with The Wizard of Oz because that clearly doesn't exist. And and, it, and not only did science fiction fall into that trap. But we're still in that trap. Techno thrillers fell into that trap. Tom Clancy became an enormous best-selling writer. And I used to talk to people who'd read Tom Clancy. And I actually read maybe two of them. And I the remember. argument was always was, I'm not reading these because these are good stories with, 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 with Jack Ryan at Tough Guy. I'm reading these because I need to know how to operate a nuclear submarine just in case. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which, let's face it, probably you don't probably you won't need to do that and probably you're not going to remember much about the details when you finish the novel. My point yes. is at least at least in male macho culture in the United States which was the dominant culture for most of the last 200 years, the idea that fiction is simply fun wasn't enough. And that puritan ideal I think affected the way we reacted to science fiction, just the way it affected the way we reacted to uh other kinds of popular fiction. Even Westerns were justified by saying it taught you what life was like on the frontier and what you had to do to survive. It did. Which would be very <laughs> useful in 1975. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. So we've, we've wandered from dystopianism to recent fiction to other things. I thought I might touch for a second on okay. issues to do with recently consumed culture. Because I've been watching things rather than reading things, Gary.
1: Well, OK, uh, you said something on your Facebook page about Loki, which I found fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found it fascinating. I, I I know what I know about the Marvel Universe is what I learn each time I see new Marvel Universe stuff. I don't keep track of all the stuff. I don't know that characters showed up in the comic books in 1967. None of that stuff. So I, I just depend on things. But I will say this. Um, I enjoyed WandaVision immensely. Uh, I thought WandaVision at the end had a couple of gratuitous supernatural battles because I guess Marvel feels like you have to do that. The sense I had with Loki was pretty much what your sense was. And since it was your original thought, I'll let you describe what you thought the end of Loki well, okay. was.
0: I don't know that I think it's super original, but I mean, I'll say this first of all there have now been three new Marvel television series, mm-hmm. which for the first time are deliberately part of the Marvel cinematic universe. Right. The, the, pre- the preceding Marvel television shows starting with agent Carter and going through, um, Oh, Daredevil And the ones that are on Netflix and all this kind of thing. They're not, they weren't connected to the MCU in any useful way. Right. Right. So they've had the three of this series, one division, uh, Falcon and winter soldier and Loki. Loki is a weird thing because it's a piece of connective tissue. I mean, I don't want to get into spoilers too much for people who haven't seen it yet, though. I, you know, it's it's enjoyable enough to see, but it's a series that's about a character that isn't about the character. It's about that doesn't right. really do enough in and of itself. That is, it, it 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 feels like watching the middle of a movie, right? It's about right. getting pieces on on stage, and then moving on. It's all about the reveal at the end. Right, And I mean, this is like a six-episode TV show that runs for 45 minutes per episode. So it's like a a long-ish movie kind of amount of stuff. But it all comes down to the big reveal in the last episode rather than anything much to do with, first of all, the titular character, the basic setup, or the other interesting stuff that they they introduce. Because they got to the end of Avengers Endgame and they have to restart everything. You know, and so right. now you're in the situation where all of the MCU stuff is about that. I mean, it's not immediately apparent, but you know, WandaVision is really about turning, you know, Wanda Maximoff into the Scarlet Witch. Show, so she can go off into the magical side of the MCU with Doctor Strange in Doctor Strange and Multiverse of right. Madness. Right. Um, Black Widow, which only came out last week, which is terrific, really is about getting the new young Black Widow on, on stage. Right. Um, and in fact, she spins the character who will be that spins into the Hawkeye TV series that's coming at the, off at the end of the year. So, so that it can then interact with the new Hawkeye so that the new Hawkeye and the new black widow can end up in a new Avengers film with whoever else. Right. Right. And then you've got this, which is supposed to be part of the exploding mechanism, which is what Loki is. So it's like, like it's entertaining and it has some great elements mean, Owen Wilson is very good in it. Um, Tom Hiddleston is frustrating because he's absolutely terrific in it with his acting, but is given nothing to do. His character goes from, well. no. from B to B.01. And I mean, as somebody pointed out in a review, I mean, with the ending part of it, you know, you get this situation where you have two Loki characters, one that we've watched for a decade, one that is allegedly up, up to a thousand years old. And they are presented with an ending posit where someone walks up to them and says, there are only two possible outcomes from this situation, right? And they don't even entertain the idea there could be a third. This
1: is Loki, the trickster god, who doesn't even offer a third. He doesn't. I, I know. He's, I, he's considering how we were introduced to him originally. I thought this character has been completely denatured. He has, he has no Loki-ness about him at all. And I think you're also right. And I, I I don't really care if it's a spoiler because I don't know what a spoiler is anymore. But the whole point of a series in which you have a villain is you don't really wait until the very last episode to introduce your villain. Because that tells me yes. that you're introducing a villain for another purpose. And this is what bothers me. It bothers which? me about But it's – yeah, uh, but what exactly, what really, done. yeah, and 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 so Loki is, you're right, he's given actually, he isn't even given that, much, given that much in terms of sharp, witty dialogue, which he had in the earlier movies. Um, yeah, I mean, I did I, what I liked about Black Widow was that I liked it to the extent it didn't look like an MCU movie, it looked more like a Mission Impossible or a James Bond movie, lots of stunts and things, but really no superpowers. Uh, so someone it,
0: described, uh, Black Widow as a, a Jason Bourne type movie.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Which is not exactly, a, exactly a, a description.
0: But what I'd um, say of Black Widow, which I enjoyed, absolutely enjoyed. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think Fl- Florence Pugh who comes in to play uh Yelena, Natasha Maximov's um, well not sister, but fellow widow. Pseudo right?
1: sister, yeah.
0: Pseudo sister. Is I think it's best when it's not an MCU movie.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think
0: when you're when you see uh Natasha at the beginning, when you see her interact for the first time with um, her adoptive sister, when you see the history of their period of time as when as, as covert agents, they p- post as a family, when you see all these other bits, bits and pieces and all through actually with, with uh, the Florence Pugh character, they're all strong. And then oh, they oh. get to, then they get the big flashy bit where it's all hmm. MCU style action. And you're going, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Can we get through this? Because, What's, f- what's interesting and engaging and funny is when Natasha and Yelena argue over clothes,
1: Yeah,
0: getting a jacket with pockets, when Yelena's winding up and teasing uh, Natasha because of putting on all these superhero poses when she does anything.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say was my favorite scene in the film was when Florence Pugh yes. says, why do you always have to do that thing with your hand splayed in front of you and you, you always do the hero landing pose, which she does. She's she done it in earlier movies. It's kind of like saying, look, all these movies you've been in, you've been doing a parody of yourself, and, and now she's a real character. I guess the problem I have with all of this, and it became more dramatic in Loki than the others, because, because the others had a lot of things going on for them, besides, um, besides what they added to the Marvel Universe. Loki, it struck to me, is the worst example I've seen yet of just pure corporate storytelling. The, the the narrative arc of the movie is just thrown away in yeah. the service of the narrative arc of the series or phase 4 say, or whatever it's called.
0: It. It. Worst is a big call, right? Worst is a big call. But there's undeniably you you're right. I mean, I mean, it's been a thing with the MCU movies themselves as they've been progressing. Hmm. They're more about handing off to the next one and handing off to the next one and building the next. And what I w- what I said online and what I would say now is that I mean, I'm not a comic book reader, so I'm sure everybody can tell me that who is, and tell me I'm wrong. But the, the the structural thing about comics are particularly the, these big comics, the big MCUE or yeah. DCU type comics, the Superman, the Batman, the Avengers kind of things, is they can never end, right? Right. Well, I need to, like, Marvel needs to be making money out of. You know, the fantastic four in thirty years. So we can wipe them and start them again as much as you want and all this sort of thing, but it's never gonna end. So there's always going to be another MacGuffin behind the door. It's just like the problem the overall structure in structural problem in the MCU with villains themselves. There are mat- Matryoshka Metrioshka doll of villains. You know, there's always oh, yeah, another, exactly. and another, another and another and well, another. And can't tell
1: and, them apart. And and one of the things they made very clear in Loki now is that now that we've got the multiverse, uh which basically means we can introduce any character at any period. I mean, the first thing that struck me as creepy about, um, uh, about the Scarlett Johansson movie was that she's already dead. Uh, you know, We're jumping back in time uh, for a character who's dead. And then at the end of the movie, and this is not a spoiler, I don't think, we find out, yeah, she's dead. Uh, there's, there's her grave. But now, of course, we're in a multiverse where we can just pretty much put any character in any timeline any way we want to once you bring a multiverse in, you wipe any consequence. Exactly.
0: So just exactly with time travel, happen. time travel to wipe consequence from the table, right? Uh, and so like, like there's a moment, right? Where, I mean, we're spoiling the hell out of us. We have to put spoiler comments in the notes and everything. Okay. So it's got spoilers, right? But you know, there's a moment at the end of uh, Black Widow in the, either the very end or the post credit scene or whatever it is, where uh, y- Yelena is at Natasha's grave. It's six years later, Natasha's died, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in in Endgame, and there's this signature whistle they have for each other, right. and, and to, to, When they were from when they were kids, and she does this this whistle. And there's no response. But there's a moment when you think there could be. Exactly. Because there's no reason for Natasha. Natasha doesn't have to stay stay dead. The only thing that will keep Natasha dead is if Scarlett Johansson doesn't want to play the character again. Exactly. Otherwise, she will
1: be back. One of the things I remember, I've, I've, I've never been to a Comic-Con, but I've been to a few of the C2E2 things here in Chicago, the Chicago Expos, whatever. Um, and uh, I remember one where I was, uh, a friend of mine had, had, had written a graphic novel. And it was a huge room of a 1,000 people listening to the executives from this comic book company talking about what decisions were being made in terms of the future of various characters in the comics. It was not Marvel. Uh, But at some point, somebody asked a question from the audience, and this executive didn't have an answer for it, and he kind of hemmed and hawed and said, well, let's get one of our content creators up here. And And this writer who had been sitting meekly behind him was suddenly called in front of the microphone to make up something about what was going to happen to some ongoing character and it, it struck me at that time that that this corporate this corporate guy is sitting in a room somewhere making enormous uh, critical decisions about the direction of a narrative and these poor writers are given basically assignments that are like the assignments we used to get in in, 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 in elementary school to write a five paragraph essay with one paragraph doing each uh, different thing. In other words, there, there, there's a sense that, okay, there was a time when people like Stan Lee, I guess actually ran the comics that they ran, but there's too much money involved now. You cannot leave it up to the writers. You have to make corporate decisions and get the writers to figure out a way to make rationale. But there's certainly
0: too much money involved now. That's undeniably true. I mean, you know, uh, these are multi 1000000000 I mean, if films making a billion and a half dollars, mm-hmm. you're not going to make those decisions lightly. I will say in, in defense of what the writers get to do in these movies, I think they, whilst they have a framework, the impression I actually get is it's not that they're given this. It's, you know, you have to do X, Right. It's, you get the P the, the, this is the set of toys you get at the beginning. Mm-hmm. This is what you have to get at the end and you can do whatever you want in between as long as we get that. I think that's probably true. Uh, so th- there's you know, more greater than you originally were you know, suggesting. I mean, I'm I'm sure that they need their plot tokens to have moved to point X at the end. Right. But, you know, and so you know, when you get a smart indie female Australian filmmaker making a Black Widow movie, right? Right. She's going to make a movie where you see real sensible stuff between the two, the two female leads and all this kind of stuff. But she also has to deliver the other thing, and that's right unavoidable.
1: I think that's a very good point. There, there, there's a there's a space within these structures for for directors, for screenwriters, even for actors. I mean, uh, I, I, I always thought that one of the things that made the mcu succeed as well as it did was robert downey jr's clear yeah. lack of seriousness as an actor thinking I'm, I'm gonna just do this well actually i disagree i don't think it's his lack of seriousness at all i think it was his ability to commit to it credibly um i think he committed he committed to it in the same way that sean connery committed to james bond which is i think I, you see these big franchise films the ones that work right mm. which have frankly
0: cartoonish elements whether it be yeah. Harry Potter whether it be the Lord of the Rings whether it be uh, the MCU stuff they work when really good actors commit themselves to it it's it's why even when they're doing something cheesy they manage to make it not cheesy it's why you know a Raul Julia or whatever it was I think it was in Adam's family at some point yeah. makes it work right because he's good enough right and um, one of the reasons that Iron Man worked is because um was because Robert Downey Jr. was able to inhabit that macho, swaggering character in a way that was plausible to viewers and engaging to viewers. And I think that's a much harder thing to do than it looks.
1: I it, it, Maybe I read the character differently from the way you read the character. I thought that the character worked simply because he was inhabiting the character and parodying it at the same time. Um, I didn't
0: get parody, no. Uh,
1: well, I mean, he was he was... No, there was there there were there there was certainly some self-reflexiveness in it, and and the other my other favorite character from those movies was Don Cheadle, who I think by the way is one of the most underrated actors in Hollywood, um, and has been for a long time, and he also had that same kind of insouciant attitude, uh, I guess, of of we're having fun First with it. I barely noticed Don Cheadle at all.
0: Really? Yeah. I'm glad you liked him. And do you see that he just got an Emmy nomination for a 98-second cameo?
1: I did not notice that, but they're like 100 Yes, for his cameo in
0: Falcon and Winter Soldier.
1: Oh, that's right. He was in that. (laughs) Yes. I'm not saying he's not terrific. You have have very good actors. I mean, one of the things about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier is that Anthony Mackie looks like a very promising actor. Uh, Oh, yeah.
0: The undeniable truth of – well, no. One of the things is that all these franchises can afford to pay for – the very best people, absolutely, and the the very best people who want to make small art house movies or whatever else they want can make one Marvel movie and you know be happy ever after financially. You know, Kate Kate Blanchett is a fabulous actress yeah. who you know plays Hella in in uh, Ragnarok, and that's enough to set her up financially for life if she wasn't already.
1: Well, you know, I, I, so. but I think also there, there's an element of fun in that. I've seen um, there there was a wonderful film. Uh, a documentary film that dealt with uh, four, four aging British actresses, one of which was Helen Mirren, and I'm trying to remember who the other three were. Maybe it wasn't mm-hmm. one, Diana Rigg. But it was clear, it's clear that Hel- Helen Mirren is having a whale of a time um, with, yeah. with all these movies that she's in. And it's, it's clear that when you watch her in the movie, you know she's having a good time. And I guess, I guess that's the sense I get. Uh, when I watch Robert Downey Jr. or or Don Sheila yeah. or Anthony Mackie, is that they're having fun with this, but they're not taking it terribly seriously. Um, yeah. One of the things, well, and it's the reason... I'm, like to say, so, I'm not quibble over it, seriously, but yeah, sure. Uh, I, 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 I think they do what's necessary, but I don't think they're buying into it in the way that... After, um, after Sean Connery made the first several James Bond movies, Roger Moore became James Bond. And some of the movies weren't bad. The scripts weren't bad. But Roger Moore clearly had no sense of irony at all about his performance, and he thought he acted as though he thought James Bond were a real character rather than a cartoon, and that made the those films flatten out to me. They didn't have yeah. nearly the kind of energy. And then later, I'm using James Bond because that's a, a, that's a kind of franchise that's gone on for what 60 years now. Um, and when Daniel Craig came back in, there was some of that same I'm having a lot of fun with this, but I don't believe it any more than you do attitude. And I think he makes more credible James Bond by not being a more credible James Bond.
0: Uh, And yet
1: all the reviews at the time said the exact opposite. Yeah. They said he was a gritty, realistic spy. Yes. I I, I never agreed with those reviews at the time. He was was tough and mean. Interestingly enough, if you go back and read the Ian Fleming novels, none of the James Bond actors were as brutal and pathological as the James Bond novels was. He was not likable yeah, at yeah. all. Yeah.
0: Let me share Let me with you share some other culture, culture I consumed culture. in the last week because mm-hmm. I watched Loki, which ultimately yeah. was disappointing, though I liked elements of it. Yeah. I watched Black Widow, which I really enjoyed but wished it wasn't an MCU movie. Hmm. I, for some reason that I cannot articulate to you, rewatched for
1: the first time in 15 years the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'm curious about that because now that it's going to be an endless miniseries, I um, well, I mean, that's, you-
0: but but it's but it's not like none of the same characters just going kind to of look the same and try and make the same amount of money. Um, look, this is what I thought about it. First of all, uh-huh. I hadn't, I don't know that I'd noticed before that basically all the women in Lord of the Rings can be reduced to wives, girlfriends, and sort of you know insipid-looking elvish ladies making promises and giving gifts. Uh, there's almost no other w- w- women in there at all. True. The, the main piece of action involving a woman in Lord of the Rings really comes down to a pun, which is kind of a bit unfortunate, when Ayo, uh kills the witch king of Angmar because he, he can be killed by you know no man born. And she goes, I'm a woman. Foof. And right, like, oh. exactly, yeah. Which also suggests that when they uh, get around to declaring the, the forthcoming age of men, they mean actually men. Right. Uh, right. Uh, also, it made it even more clear to me that and I don't think I'm, like I found myself watching it and I really enjoyed it. And for the first time, I really enjoyed return of the King, which is interesting to me, hmm. but I also found myself going, Oh, I get it. So I've got the quota elf who does nothing really much at all. The quota dwarf who's there to be funny. Right. And then the actual people who are doing stuff, you know, like near as I can tell Legolas isn't there for anything at all. And you could take him out of the Lord of the Rings and it wouldn't make a whole heap of difference.
1: But those are great. Sequences. Story. Sorry. But those are great sequences. I mean the the Legolas uh, the arrow thing sliding down the What is it I, I, I remember silly. I, I, re- I remember, that. remember him sliding down the trunk of an elephant or something and, and shooting one yes, arrow. It looks ridiculous now.
0: That's the other thing that's happened, right? Yeah. Uh, Fellowship of the Ring is now twenty years old. Yeah, what was once breathtaking is now acceptable. True. The, the the special effects are not terrible, apart from two or three pieces. You know, if you look at it, you'd go. The flying Nazgul look naff. Uh, the Ent always looked naff, uh-huh. but the rest of it looks good. I mean, it still looks good. Um, Vigo Mortensen is still the best thing in it, pretty much. Doesn't surprise along me. Along with the, along with the scenery of New Zealand. Oh, you come on, Ian McKellen. You know a lot, an awful lot of M- Ian McKellen, who is good in it, right? But though not as good as Christopher Lee, I don't think. Though Christopher Lee gets a lot less to do.
1: Well, he has a lot, yeah, and he's got a lot more scenery to chew while he's doing it. A good chunk of what McKellen gets to do is to stand there and look kind of meaningful. Yeah,
0: right. You know, which is like acting light. It's like I'm making faces at the camera people. Um, So, yeah, but but I enjoyed it much more. and Almost enough to make me be willing to go back and um, reread the books which I've not done, and you, to this day, as I've said before in this podcast, have never read to the end of oh. Return of the King because way too many endings on the end of that Well, thing.
1: not only that, but I think that you would also find if you went back and looked at the books, and I haven't reread them in many years, that the the problem with women characters didn't start with Peter Jackson.
0: Oh, no, 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 they're in the book. It's, uh, uh, yeah, and look am i horrified no this is a book written by an oxford don between 1938 and 1947 or something right yeah or 1949 uh and it's largely kind of a riff on the first world war i'm not totally surprised that that there's a lack of meaningful female characters in it but still you know it does kind of stand out more and more over time and no i don't think you could well, maybe you could, but I'm, I'm doubtful you could recast The Lord of the Rings in a way that would make it more inclusive. I just think you need to find new stories, and maybe that's what they'll do with this Amazon billion TV series-y thing they're doing, but who
1: knows? I think one of the things that uh, I would like directors and producers to realize is that I think one of the things that made Lord of the Rings work, and that generally is underrated in looking at movies, is that it's a very well-edited movie. Each sequence works <laughs> as a sequence, and one of the things I was rewatching for God knows what reason uh, in the last month or so was I watched the original Jurassic Park. I watched the original two yeah. Jurassic Parks, the two that were directed by Spielberg. And I, I was thinking, okay, the special effects in the second one were better technically, but both movies were nothing but set pieces. And some of the set yeah. pieces had absolutely nothing to do with dinosaurs. There's a probably a 10 or 12 minute sequence of a jeep dangling over a cliff. And is it going to fall or is it not going to fall? Um, And are they going to rescue them? And then I started looking back at Jaws, where by, you know, by 1977 standards, those ought to be primitive special effects. You don't even notice that the special effects aren't impressive because it's so well cut. You know, you you don't have to look at the, uh, you don't have to look at the dinosaurs in the original Jurassic Park that long. We're introduced to them in very specific ways. We're introduced to them by Laura Dern with an absolute expression of awe on her face. And then we get a kind of distant shot of a brontosaurus. Um, One of the things I learned from watching movies with grandkids is that set pieces are really important for these movies. If all the set pieces work individually, you don't really remember that there wasn't much of a plot. And, you know, the plot in Jurassic Park is that the plot is dinosaurs bad. Dinosaur is going to go wild. That's all. That's all you need to know. But the set pieces are brilliant. The set pieces in Jaws are brilliant. The plots of these things. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, which is why I mentioned I have very fond memories of Legolas, even though you're absolutely right. When I think about the scenes he was in, they did nothing to the plot whatsoever. You could cut him out.
0: Utterly unneeded. Um, I mean, and for 10 hours of it, it still amounts to, I mean, you know, if the Hobbit was there and back again, so is the Lord of the Rings.
1: Yeah. But it goes back I to I mean, Lord point. of the Rings
0: is we all got to go dump the ring in the mountain, dump the ring in the mountain, go home. I mean, not – which doesn't – I mean, I've got to say, there's going to be people listening who are Lord of the Rings fans are going to go, oh, my God, you're saying this terrible thing about Tolkien. The books are still the books, and they're still terrific. But And the movies are great. I mean, for what they are, the movies are phenomenal, but oh. this is still true. The other thing – there are two, a couple of things I watched. I watched okay. the opening episode of Schmigadoon. Sh- ah,
1: which I've – Have you dashed. heard of Schmigadoon?
0: Schmigadoon is put together by Lauren Michaels at Saturday Night Live. with one of the actresses there as one of the producer writers, along Secily with Keegan strong, Michael Key. Yeah. Strong it's a, and- especially strong, and it riffs on Brigadoon, the old musical. Yeah, so, the old fan of and, and of the whole the- thing's a riff on musicals, right? And it's delightful. I mean, I, I think it's going to get probably get tangled up in the form in the sense that they've got a set plot. They have got like six episodes yeah. for this for it, and you know. Without, I don't. It the, the, the basically the setup is couple who are together go to a retreat for couples, wander off somewhere, get caught in a town that is music. You know that is you know everyone's in a musical basically, and, hot, yeah. and they can only escape when they find true love. So really, the only thing that can happen across the six episodes is they find true love and they leave. Yeah. So no matter of how they do it, but that's delightful. The other thing is, have you been watching Warner Brothers' uh, Miracle Workers? No, I have not. Miracle Workers is like the best thing. You, really? You, like, yeah, oh, I, I we just love it, right? It's written by this guy called this guy Simon Rich. Now, it, uh, it's an ensemble comedy where the actors repeat, but the story, the characters, and setup don't. Okay, so it's a true true ensemble piece. It's Daniel Radcliffe, Steve Buscemi, Geraldine Viswanathan, John Bass, a couple other people, right? The first one, which is just called Miracle Workers, is the story of some lowly ranked angels in a bureaucracy run by a God who's given up on paying attention to earth uh, and is more interested in starting a lazy river, lazy Susan restaurant. Steve Buscemi plays God. Daniel Radkiff plays this uh, low ranked angel in the, in this vast bureaucracy where, where that's responsible for granting rich wishes, but only practical wishes. So for example, we'll spend four hours, five hours gently you know, because it has to, they have to obey the laws of physics Uh, removing a couple of leaves off a batch of keys that are falling down that someone's looking for so they can find their keys, right? Mm -hmm. It's fabulous. And then the second series, Miracle Worker's Dark Ages, right, is set in the Dark Ages. Daniel Radcliffe plays this prince. Buscemi plays uh, the local shit shoveler. Uh, Geraldine Veswanathan plays his daughter, and that plays through. And the latest one, which just came out this week, which we just watched the first episodes of, uh, is Miracle Worker's Oregon Trail, where huh. Daniel Rad- Radcliffe plays a a priest leading a group of uh, pilgrims to the uh, to, to uh, Oregon to get away from where they are, and they're being led by Steve Buscemi, who is a, a a Billy the Kid type character on the run, and it's hilarious, and they're brilliant, and you should find them and watch them. And this is three seasons of it now so far. Third season. Yeah, and they've managed to keep selling the idea that you get Daniel Radcliffe and Steve Buscemi and Geraldine Viswanathan, and you don't get the same characters, you don't get any further emotional things. It's like, here's like eight episodes, that's the story, you're done. I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that before.
1: I don't. uh, There have been repertory programs on television before, but not for many, many years, I think. Mm. I haven't seen anything that good. I, I did watch the three Fear Street movies based on R.L. Stein novels, which I didn't read, so I assume that these are actually based on the novel. years yeah, ago. Well, yeah. okay, well, many years ago, Charles Brown, our 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 mutual former boss in uh <laughs> said, "Well, R.L. Stein had written an adult horror novel, and he wanted me to read it, but he said you have to read at least a bunch of the uh, kids novels, not even young adult novels, I guess, mid grade novels." So I read. Uh, the Goosebumps. I read like five or six Goosebumps, and they were—they really did what they were supposed to do, um, which is basically tell eight to 10-year-olds that everything you're afraid of is absolutely out there, and it absolutely is going to get you, and you're absolutely right to be terrified. Yes. yes, moving to a new neighborhood, yes, they're all vampires. Going to summer camp, yes, they're going to be aliens. So I thought, this is great. This is absolutely telling kids. But then he wrote these Fear Street novels, which I did not read, which are supposedly, I guess, high school level. And the reason I thought of that when you were mentioning it is that it's, it's, it's three parts, which are kind of the first two parts of which are literally tributes to 80s slasher movies. Uh, yeah. Part one takes place in a mall. Part one is basically a homage to, uh, to George Romero. Part two takes place in a summer camp, which is a homage to all the summer camp movies from the 19th. And part three moves back to 1666 to tell the story of the alleged witch that creates the curse on this town. The 1666 episodes use the same characters from one of the contemporary episodes so we can kind of see how it yeah. works out. None of them know how to do any accident that is remotely credible for 1666, but that's probably all right uh, because it's it, it, it's... I guess my recommendation would be it's exactly what you expect expect of it and it's completely unpretentious, uh, which is, it's, it's not a lot to ask for of horror movies today, but unpretentious is kind of a big ask for me. <laughs> just, you know, Sorry. if you're just going to do 80s movies, if you're just going to, you know, redo something we've seen it does, and at least do it with, you know, some kind of affection and respect. Absolutely. Sounds good. So there
0: you go. a a A week or two or three of... Watching TV, being unsure about Marvel, trying to reconsider dystopias, and sort of try and get
1: through another pandemic week. And until we talk again, then, I guess this has been yet another episode of the Coot Street Podcast. (laughs) I guess it has.
0: Yeah, it's been like that. Okay.